Hello, I'm Bill Warner. And I'm Joan Warner. Bill's going to be answering questions today, which were posted on his Facebook page of the week of February the 17th. Next question. Does political Islam have a goal of world domination? Yes, yes and yes. The Quran is devoted to the political domination of the Muslim. The Sirah is a story of how Muslims became dominant over non-Muslims, and the Hadith are filled with jihad, and the jihad is to go on until every human being is under the rule of Sharia. So that's how sure they are that they want to dominate the world. Why is it that our soldiers in Afghanistan were forced to use gloves when handling the Quran, yet Muslim proselytizers just hand them out like candy in Western countries without the same requirement? I have two words for you, political correctness. It is tragic to talk to FBI and Army as to how they're trained to deal with Muslims. They train them nothing about Islam. Instead, what they teach them about is how to be polite. And so here we're bending over backwards to be polite, and we don't even need to do so. By the way, in this Afghan story about handling Qurans with gloves on, we have the fact that a church organization sent many Bibles to Afghanistan. They were put in a trash heap and burned. But the Quran, oh no, we have to be very careful with it. It's a sadness to see such ignorance in action. Next question. Does political Islam justify its actions based on the teachings of Muhammad? Well, that's half right. Everything in Islam is based on Quran, Sirah, Hadith. Everything. So that it means that it would justify all of its actions based on Quran, Sirah, Hadith, which includes Muhammad, but it also includes Allah. Question. I hear Islam is one of the fastest growing religions. My question is, do they have statistics of the people leaving Islam? There are no statistics, but I've heard estimates by Muslims in the United States that one Muslim in five is actually an apostate. Now, it's hard to get statistics because leaving Islam is a possible death sentence. So a lot of people just leave Islam in their heart, but they don't make any public pronunciation. When you say it's a death sentence, Bill, what do you, what do you mean by that? An apostate from Islam can be killed. Is that so according says, uh, to Sharia law? According to Hadith and Sharia. Okay. Now, many times what happens is they don't kill them, but they just shun them and, and don't ever let them have contact with their family. Next question. This always comes up in debates. Does Islam need reforming and can it be reformed to be the claim that it is a religion of peace? Well, before we talk about Islam and reforming it, let's say what Islam is. Islam is the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. That's Islamic doctrine. So we now have a problem. So if we're going to reform Islam, we would have to reform the Quran. Do we reform the Quran by taking something out of it, or do we reform the Quran by adding something to it? Here's the problem. The Quran is self-defined as being perfect, universal, and eternal. So how do you improve a perfection? And the words of Muhammad in the Quran of the Sir, I mean, not the Quran, but in the Hadith, they're beyond reform because they're written down and they're for all time. So Islam cannot be reformed at all. It's designed that way. Next question. 
Is Islam the branch of Nestorian Christianity, as Father John Harden, S.J., claimed in the 1990s? The origins of Islam are hidden in history. Now, we have the myth, the self-myth of Islam, but what I think happened is that there were, in the early days of Christianity, there were many different kinds of Christianity, all based around the question, what is the true nature of Christ? Now, some Christians believe that the true nature of Christ was that he was simply a prophet of God. That's all. He was not the son of God. So this particular church was an Arab church. And so I think that possibly that Islam evolved out of this Arab church, which believed that Jesus was just a prophet and not a son of God. So what you're saying then is that Islam would be a Christian heresy. Yes, but it could also be viewed as a Jewish heresy. Okay. Next question. How much money are Arab countries giving to the UN and other politicians in Europe and the United States to promote the migration of Muslims around the world? Well, I don't know how many there are, but I do know that Muslims are well versed in giving money to make things work. Muhammad would bribe people and Muhammad would use money to attract people to Islam. So there's the main place I'm worried about money going to, though, is not the politicians, although that's bad within itself, but how they're taking over the universities. The universities, I was a college professor for eight years. Let me assure you that a university can be sold or rented. And so the Muslims are buying massive influence in key universities. That's what concerns me most. Well, isn't it incumbent on all Muslims to tithe um, to their mosques? Yes. And part of that tithe money, except tithe is not the right word to use. The, the zakat is the word to use here. And Can you spell that for us, Bill? Zakat. Z-A-K-A-T. Now, part of the purpose of the zakat is to you be used for... Uh, jihad. Now, there's many kinds of jihad, and one of the there's different forms of use of pen and books, writing. So, therefore, we normally think of jihad as just being with a sword, but this is the kind of work that's being done with the jihad of pen and speech. Question: Are you aware of any time in history Islam was prevented from taking over a country without having a war? Short answer: No. After Islam invaded Spain in the year 711, it took seven centuries before they could be driven out. The Muslims were driven out of the Balkans. Here's the problem. Once you drive them out, they're, just good. they're now returning. And we have such historical ignorance that the people in Spain and the Balkans don't seem to realize they're back. And this time they plan on staying. Question. Islam is already very entrenched in Canada. Do you know of any organizations by Muslims working to reform Islam? Many came to North America to escape their government, and I think there's some organizations worth supporting. Well, we've dealt earlier with the question of reform of Islam. It cannot be done. So if you're supporting someone and in doing something that cannot be done, I would have to question, are you really investing your money wisely? It's a fool's errand. Interesting. Next question. In the USA, do they, political Islam believers, have a political convention of sorts? What they have are meetings all the time. 
The Muslims are excellent at group work. They think of themselves less as individuals and more as a part of it, the Ummah, which is the Muslim society, if you will. The point is, is that Muslims meet a lot because it's just an, it's in their nature. This, by the way, is something that the Kafirs don't do at all, hardly at all. Well, just off the top of my head, I can think of the Islamic uh, Society of North America, uh, ICNA, um, oh, they have dozens Muslim of, American they have, Society. They have dozens of organizations. Right, and CARE. <laughs> In the USA, do they, political Islam believers, have a political convention of sorts? Yes, they do. They have political conventions of sorts all the time, and they have different groups that have these meetings. So very much. Look, we need to understand that Muslims are very serious about the business of politics. We're sort of casual about it compared to them. Question. Why do they seem to back Democrats who have beliefs that are in contrast to Islamic teachings like gays, guns, and anti-religious stuff? Before 9-11, most Muslims considered themselves to be Republicans. But what happened was, after 9-11, Bush went to war in Iraq, and they switched their allegiance from Republicans to Democrats. But it is true. A Muslim is more naturally a Republican and a conservative than they are a left-winger. Question. Is political Islam a threat to America? This question is too small. Political Islam is a threat to all governments in all states. So the answer is yes. Question. Halal certifications for foods and products in the United States, what level are we at here? I don't hear anyone in the United States speaking or teaching about it in social media, Christians, and so forth. Halal certification is a very important issue because it's an economic issue. Halal certification is a very subtle piece of business. Let me give you an example. In Chicago, children in the schools were sent home with a note that said, don't bring gummy bears or marshmallows to school. Well, when inquiry was made as to why this happened, it turns out that the Muslim Brotherhood had talked to the education board, and they said that mushrooms, I'm sorry, marshmallows and gummy bears had pork in it because they had gelatin. And so therefore, their children couldn't eat pork and they didn't want them in the school at all. So they were taken out of the schools. This is bringing halal food to the schools by simply forbidding something to be brought in that is not halal. This is the thin end of the long wedge, and we need to speak a lot more about halal and become familiar with it because it is a big economic problem. I know that some people are doing research on halal, and they found out that uh, it is a huge multi-billion dollar business around the world, and that a lot of the proceeds go to jihad. Well, as it should. If the money comes into Islam, it's supposed to be spent for jihad. At some point in time, could you do a, a short uh, video about halal? Yes, I need to do that. That is a, a must-do. Question. How do you see the ultimate outcome of the conflict between the Ummah and the rest of the world? Well, this is the biggest question of the 21st century. And the outcome is, if we don't do anything more, we will become Sharia-compliant as a nation as a whole. But we're not pushing back enough. Instead, too many people are sitting back, reading their web pages, and going, well, what are we going to do? Well, what are we going to do? That attitude is the attitude of a loser. We have to take this on to win. Uh, 
Bill, don't you think that uh, not enough people understand what the UMA is? Well, the UMA, of course, is just the body of believers. It's every Muslim is a part of the UMA. They seem to uh, really hold to the collective, to the UMA, and march in lockstep. Yes, they do. That is their strength. Question. I read that there are multiple schools of Islam. How are they applied, and what is their relevance to the average Muslim? I really don't care what it, their relevance to the average Muslim is. What I care is to, with respect to myself. There are many forms of Islam. The biggest one, of course, is Sunni Shia, which is a very popular question. What is the difference between Sunni and Shia? And my response to this is simple. If you're a Kafir, a non-Muslim, there's no difference at all. So the different schools doesn't really make any difference to the Kafir. So what you're saying is all schools are going to treat non-believers as Kafirs? Yes, it's all the same to us. Question. How do we keep Islam out of our government? Well, this is a simple question with a huge answer. We need to view Muslims running for office as something that's just starting and it's going to get much worse. But instead of looking at this in a negative fashion, this is a positive opportunity. We need to train people who have the moral purpose to bring the truth to Islam and to do so in the public marketplace of ideas that come from a political campaign. We need to develop a nation in which when a Muslim runs for office, every time they show up to give a political speech, someone is there with signs and brochures to tell the people what the truth of Islamic politics really is. We need to see the campaign instead of a time to wring our hands and worry about what we're going to do as an ability that gives us a forum to fight against Islam. So these running people running for office is a chance for victory instead of a time for crying and tears and depression. What do you think it will take for people to get up and go to these meetings? I know a lot of people um, talk about it, but no, very few people ever go and do anything. And do anything. Here we see the morale of the Kafir. Muslims have a fabulous morale. They, they're on their toes and they're going to win. Here we are, we only have less than 5% population of Muslims in this country, and people are already giving up. Well, what are we going to do? It's all over. Our biggest problem as Kafirs is courage. We're so timid. And so we're, what will morally outrage us anymore? It's like, well, we just worry and cry. So the problem is not Islam. The problem is us and our attitude about being losers. That's blunt talk, but it's true. Question. How would you formulate questions to screen suspected supporters of political Islam at the border in ways which, according to Islamic doctrine, do not allow them to use taqiyah? What questions and in what order? This is, now this is a long one. Sharia through taqiyah allow them, allows them to lie. How do you formulate questions by which their form negates the allowance to lie? The best way to ask questions of a Muslim about what they believe is to ask them to take a specific thing, let's say wife beating. Quote the verse about wife beating and then say, do you as a Muslim support wife beating? Or will you condemn and abjure it? That is, will you say this verse is wrong or it's right? We need to hold their feet to the fire of doctrine. So that again and again, we need to say, 
Muhammad married Aisha when she was six and consummated the marriage when she was nine. Do you condemn and and uh, this action on their part, or do you believe this is a way that a society should run, that child marriage is good? We condemn it or support it. So we need to take the parts of Islam that are a problem to us and put their feet to the fire saying, do you condemn this or do you support it? This puts them in, they can't condemn it, you see, because that would be denying the doctrine. So we needs to put them so they're uncomfortable. Yeah, but they can lie, Bill. Of course they can lie. That's given. As a matter of fact, the Sharia is very clear about lying. You should always advance Islam with the truth, but if the truth won't do it, then a lie is admit permissible. So if you're there, uh, at this uh, meeting, political meeting, and you say uh, to the candidate, the Muslim candidate, um, do you hold with uh, the verse in the Quran 434 that says that you can beat your wife? Will you condemn that or support it? Will you condemn that or support it? And the person says, oh, I condemn that. They could be lying to you. Right. But you've accomplished something here. Every Muslim needs to know this question can be asked of them. Right now, we're afraid to ask Muslims any questions about their religion. We have to start at least with putting their feet to the oh, floor. Oh, I see. You could use that as a platform to inform and educate people yes. as to what the doctrine actually is. Right. Um, next question. There are two Muslim women in Congress. Is there a conflict between Islam and being governed by a woman? Well, of course there is. Women are subjugated in every respect, but we're seeing that many of the candidates now that are running for office are Muslim women. There are hadith about saying that people who let themselves be wed by women will not prosper. There's a hadith about that. Is there anyone alive that you think could be or could claim to be the awaited Mahdi of Islam. I know nothing about Mahdi's other than they're supposed to exist. This is more of a religious question than a political Islam question. And no, I have no idea about the Mahdi. Question. What do you think of the work of Dr. David Wood, Acts 17 Apologetics, and others such as the Apostate Prophet and Islam Critiqued? I think these are intelligent, heroic men particularly apostate prophet. I'm a fan of all of them. Question. Sadly, people are spiritually illiterate. How do you deal with people who tar Christianity as violent based on the Old Testament? Well, my response to this is to try to give an objective answer. And so what I do is, is I first divine, define violence and I define it as something done to those outside of your particular group. For instance, if you're dealing with the Jews in the Old Testament, I call political violence that in which the Jews attack others. And if we do that and count the words... Political violence the Jews attack others? Yeah, what I mean here is, is that there's two kinds of violence in the Old Testament, where Jews attack Jews and where Jews attack non-Jews. All I count for political violence is Jews attacking non-Jews. Oh, okay. So this is what I call political violence. And if we do that, we discover that 5.6% of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is devoted to political violence. And that is a total of 34,000 words. In Islam, there's 228,000 words devoted to political violence. And in the New Testament, there is none. 
So what I draw from my conclusions here is that Christianity and the New Testament has no political violence. The Old Testament has some, and the trilogy, Quran, Sirah, Hadith of Islam, has a lot of political violence. And all that political violence is, uh, in the Old Testament, you're saying, is based on, uh, against... Where Jews attack non-Jews. Jews attack non-Jews. Uh, thank you, Bill, and I hope everyone has enjoyed uh, listening to the answers to their questions, um, and hopefully we'll be doing this again at a later date. Thank you. Goodbye.